We just read last week, we read that uh, we would blow Yom Chu'ah, we would blow the shofar on Yom Chu'ah. On the first day of the seventh month, there would be Yom Chu'ah, a sacred day, a day of no work. On the seventh month and on the tenth day of that month is Yom Kippur. So you have to ask yourself, biblically speaking, why would one blow shofar on the first day of the seventh month? It's not Rosh Hashanah, obviously, according to the Bible. It's not the first month, it's the seventh month. Why blow shofar on the first day of the seventh month? Well, a lot of scholars believe it's because they wanted to announce the month, because you could look at the new moon. We go to according to a lunar calendar. So if you look up in the sky, you know it's a new moon. Which new moon is it? Well, you blow shofar to let everybody know it's the new moon in which the month of Yom Kippur falls. This is the big one. You blow on the new moon so that everyone knows Yom Kippur is coming in 10 days. Because Yom Kippur was the biggest day of the year in terms of repairing relationships, in terms of repairing uh, the purity of the sanctuary, and therefore of the whole Israelite camp. It was a huge day of solemnity, a huge day of return, repentance, atonement. Why put that on the 10th day of the seventh month? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Unless you look four days after Yom Kippur until you look at the full moon that is the harvest festival of Sukkot. Every time you see a full moon, you have to ask yourself, is this a Jewish festival? They're all on the full moon. So the full moon of Sukkot is a big, big celebration in biblical Judaism in the temple times. It was the last harvest before the winter. Everything that you were grateful for from your Sukkot harvest, you were grateful for because it was going to carry you through the winter, through the fallow time, through the dead time, through the time where you can't grow anything. Your family depends on surviving the winter through eating what you harvested at the fall Sukkot harvest. So this was a huge party in the biblical world. Um, the priests took their old linen underwear and like wrapped them around sticks and had them as torches and like had games going on with them. It was a huge festival. So a lot of scholars believe our tradition, many people in our tradition believe that Yom Kippur actually was the preparation for Sukkot. If you're going to have the biggest party of the year, if this is the end of your agricultural season, if this is all you're depending on to survive the winter, then you want to clean up the relationships between all of you so that that party can be a really good party. We all know what it is to gather together with people that we have resentments against. We know we've hurt their feelings. We know we've really wronged them. We know there's stuff going on between us. How much different is it when we come to that same gathering having done the really scary work of saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And having people have the courage to forgive you and risk relationship again. And for us to risk forgiving people, for us to risk saying, I'm sorry, and truly being forgiven. Many scholars believe that was the point of Yom Kippur, to clear it up so that come Sukkot, v'samachta b'chagecha v'hayita ach sameach. That's the commandment in Torah about Sukkot. You will rejoice in this festival and you will be only 
joyful. You will be only rejoicing. Ach samach. Well, that is a great goal. But how are we supposed to do that now? How are we supposed to celebrate now? With so much happening, so many of you have told us that it's been so hard to celebrate a 50th anniversary, an 80th birthday, the birth of a new baby, a bar or bat mitzvah, something really important, a wedding that's been postponed and postponed and postponed. And now, well, we're just going to do it and we'll have a party later. We're supposed to be only joyful, only happy. How are we supposed to do that with all that's going on? The good news is our tradition has always held so many things together at the same time. We're a both and people. We break a glass under the chuppah. The most joyful day of a person's life, we smash a glass. Who does that? To remember the destruction of Jerusalem, to remember the destruction of so many peoples, to remember the destruction that are so many people's lives. We're a both and people. So Sukkot has always been for us, yes, a time of great celebration. But remember, Israel was completely dependent on rain for their crops. Egypt, neighboring Egypt, had the Nile. That was how their crops could be guaranteed to succeed. You could irrigate from the Nile, not so in the land of Israel. And the land of Israel was all dependent on rain. And if rain didn't fall during the winter, it meant famine in the spring. So as much as we were grateful for everything we had from the fall harvest, what our pilgrims based Thanksgiving on was Sukkot, yes, we should be thankful. And always our tradition was aware that we were anxious, deeply anxious about the spring. Because if the rain didn't fall in the winter, our families would starve in the spring. Think about Sukkot. What is the main commandment of Sukkot? To build a sukkah. You build a sukkah. And how is a sukkah halachically kosher? It has to be temporary. Three walls have to be completely temporary. And it has to blow over if a really strong wind comes. It can't survive a strong wind. So by definition, the sukkah has to be fragile. It has to be temporary. It has to be blow-overable. And we move into the sukkah for a week. So this great samachta bechagecha, you should only be sameach, you should only be happy, living in a temporary shelter that could blow over in a strong wind something that we put all this energy and effort into and to decorating and then it's going to be gone? Think about the other one, the lulav. We bring together the four species and I I know you know every trick in the book. You try to wrap a wet paper towel around the bottom of the lulav. You try to keep it in the plastic. You'll put it in the fridge. Guess what? It doesn't matter. Within a few days, the bouquet that is the lulav starts to brown. It starts to die. You should only be happy and rejoice in your festival. Well, guess what? We live in a temporary shelter where the rain comes through and it can blow over and we're supposed to wave this thing that starts to die even as it's put in our hands. So we got it from a long time ago that we hold both the ability to be thankful for what we have for our blessings, 
for the abundance that we know and to hold at the same time the serious anxiety about what's to come. Prayers for rain on Hoshana Rabbah, the end of Sukkot. Prayers for rain were fervent prayers for survival. Not just we hope it rains and we hope things are nice in the spring. It was prayers for survival at the time that we're told, you're only supposed to be joyful. Yom Kippur is the same way. This is supposed to be a simcha for us in some ways. This is supposed to be the holiest day. And yet, what do we do? We stop eating, we stop drinking, we stop anointing ourselves, we are not supposed to have intimate relations. We cut off our contact with everything that is a machaya, everything that connects us to life, because we're rehearsing our death. Traditionally, we wear our burial shroud on Yom Kippur. We wear all white. The burial shroud is all white. Everyone is dressed in white when they die. It is the great equalizer. We are supposed to remember that we're going to die, even on this holiest of days. What is our practice? To rehearse our own death, to really enter our understanding of being finite, of being fragile, of being vulnerable. Our Yom Kippur practices, our anxious prayers for rain, are about descending into awareness of fragility so that we may pay attention to that which really sustains us. If we stay in our big houses, we think we're safe. We think if we just buy some more and collect some more, then we can somehow stave off death and being finite and being limited. That's what we do in our Western culture. But guess what? It goes back as far as the Bible. Egypt, Michael Goodman teaches, the Bible understood that Egypt, that's a place of material comfort in some ways because of how your agriculture is sustained. But dangerous for the Israelites in terms of their physical selves and their liberty. The land of Israel, you would think, wow, this is the glorious land, the land flowing in milk and honey. It's all dependent on rain. And Michael Goodman says, that's what kept the Israelites humble. The Bible teaches the danger is Egypt, where it's all comfortable and all going to happen all the time. And then you're tempted to say, you know what? I deserve this. I did this. Living in the land of Israel, you know something about your absolute existence is dependent on things outside of your control. At uh, Rosh Hashanah, I talked about mashber. I talked about crisis coming from shavar to break, shiber to shatter, and the birthing stool. But guess what? Hebrew is such a rich and old language that that same root, shin vet resh, shavar, if you change the vowels and you change the context, shever actually means grain, nourishment, sustenance, grain, that which has come from something that's broken open, something that has been threshed. But how do you get shever? How do you get nourishment? How do you get grain? Many times in Torah, the most times we see shever, this word, it's not used. Usually you say harvest, crop, bounty, produce. When is shever used? Shever is used when there's a famine and you need rations. So how do you get shever? To get shever, Joseph 
you remember the story of Joseph? They have to go down to Egypt. They have to go into the dangerous place of Egypt to get shevil, to get nourishment. And so the rabbis ask, well, Joseph has to, uh, Jacob's family has to go down to Egypt and we know what happens to Joseph. He's had a lot of goings down. He got thrown into the pit by his brothers who were jealous and hated him for no reason. He got thrown into the dungeon for something he didn't do, for a crime he didn't commit. He suffered injustice and went to prison. There's a lot of going down in Torah when it comes to shever, when it comes to nourishment. And the Hasidic teaching out of so many of these stories is that there's a concept of yerida litzorech aliyah, a going down in order to come up. There's a spiritual value, yerida, Litzorech Aliyah, a going down that's in order to cultivate a different way of coming up. Yerida Litzorech Aliyah, we go down on Yom Kippur, fasting. We go down into an awareness about death. We go down into rehearsing what, what it will mean. What will our life mean when we're in the grave and we're gone? What will we have left behind? We go down on Sukkot, leaving our lofty places, and we go to a fragile little hut that can blow over in a wind. Joseph goes down and down and down. Always, it's about how do we rise. That's the reason for Yerida, for the going down. It does not mean finding a silver lining. It does not mean everything happens for a reason. You all know me well enough to know that is not my theology, God forbid. It does mean, Yerida Litzorech Aliyah does mean finding meaning in what otherwise could seem like absolute helplessness in situations of suffering and in situations that we feel are beyond our control. Yerida, Litzorech Aliyah. Joseph learns from the hatred of his brothers and the incredible horrors that come from that for him. He learns from an unjust accusation which throws him in prison where he might be for the rest of his life. He learns and he comes up humble and he comes up aware that there's something bigger than him that he can also draw on as he stands before Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh says, you're a brilliant dream interpreter, Joseph says, "Mm mm-mm, it's not me. It's God working through me. That's what he learned in the pit. That's what he learned in the dungeon. That's what we learn on Yom Kippur at five o'clock when we think we might pass out from hunger and from thirst and from heat. Can we do that now? Can we do that now? We are in a period of Yerida for sure. All of the hatred of brothers and sisters against each other in this country and all the suffering that's come from that. Yosef's story is a mythological tale about exactly that. About injustice. Injustice. That could have meant his life. That could have 
turned him into somebody extremely bitter and broken. But he chose, our mythology teaches us, we each have the choice. Can we see Yerida, Litzorech Aliyah, or just Yerida? Can we understand going down to come up in a different way? Or are we just going to sit with the fact that it's all hard and it all feels hopeless and it all feels so grim? It's easy for each of us to think there's nothing we can do. Actually, it's way bigger than us. It's way bigger than us. But Jill Stouffer of Haverford College, who studies countries and societies that have experienced genocide and other major human atrocities on a grand scale and have attempted post-conflict transformation, here's what she says. The expert in societies trying to come back from the most horrific, grand-scale horrors we can think of. She says it's very difficult for those societies to come back, but the amazing thing about humans is that we can learn to be different from who we were in the past, but that no institution or state is good enough to do that on its own. She says it really does hang on the work of individuals. It becomes a broad social responsibility to live in such a way that people who were left behind or abused or those left behind by those who didn't survive to make sure that the people who are most fragile know that there is a commitment in the society to have that not happen again and to know that they live among people who wish that the past were otherwise, who repudiate what happened and who have a will to go forward in a different way. Of course, making that come to pass is tremendously difficult, and it relies on a lot of different individuals stepping up and becoming someone who learns how to hear what before was inconvenient to hear. What she's telling us is that we don't get to say it's too big, it's systemic, it's bigger than me. What she's saying is it can only happen through each one of us, creating an environment, a society that says to those who have been abused, those who have suffered the most horrific kinds of things, that they know we don't want that anymore. And we wish it had been different. And we want to build something different. That's what will work. Not a state institution, not a government. That's all that's ever worked, she says. Will we be one of those people is what our tradition asks us today and tomorrow. Will we be one of those people who say we can swear that we are sorry and we swear that we will try to make it different? Yerida Letzorech Aliyah, a going down that informs our going up. We see so much around us that we feel truly is beyond any way we have of influencing. But that's the beauty of Sukkot. That's the beauty of Yom Kippur. We get that. We can lean into that at the same time that we are grateful for our capacity to change. We are grateful for our capacity to act. We are grateful for the abundance, the blessings that many of us have known in quarantine. Is quarantine horrible? Yes. Is it a serious descent? Yes. Can we also hold how grateful we are for the beautiful place in which we are experiencing quarantine? Yes. 
that we have the opportunity to stay safe in our homes and not be forced to the front lines? Yes. Shever. In case we didn't have enough meanings, I don't make this stuff up, people. The other meaning of shever is the interpretation of a dream. Shever, from shavar, to break open. To break open a dream and find its meaning. To find its interpretation. Shever can be how do we hold this whole experience we've been through for the last six months. I, for one, want to hit a hard restart now at the high holidays. Sukkot, I want to say, okay, it's not March 197th. We're going to start Tishrei. We're going to start something else. Yes, we still have many of the things carrying over, but can we see it? It's okay, we're done with Yerida only, only a going down, only a suffering, only deprivation. Can we say we're doing Yerida Litzorech Aliyah? We're now going to do something about all those things that we've been so suffering over that we can use this time of not driving downtown and not being in traffic and not doing all of the other distractions we normally get pulled uh, to, to attend to. Can we use this to inform Yerida what it would mean to go up on the other side of this? It's up to us how we see it. It's up to us how we hold it. We've always done the both and. Can we really hold this time Yerida L'Torech Aliyah? so that we can build something else on the other side. On Yom Kippur, we rehearse our death to live a better life. On Sukkot, we celebrate all that we have, even as we express our anxiety about what we can't control and what's to come. Shavar holds all. Shever, Shavar, Shiber, all of the meanings we've talked about over the last two holidays. Breakage, shattering, crisis, birthing stool, the moment of greatest pain and danger while giving birth, nourishment as grain, and the interpretation of a dream which gives it its meaning. If our tradition can preserve in one three-letter root, if our tradition can preserve all that in one, the same three-letter root, how do we dare not? Suffering and renewal, anxiety and hope, how dare we not? The language has preserved our people's experience. We hold all of them together. So we could say this is the worst year ever. Do you know that cartoon about the Back to the Future guy who comes to the guy? I'm so bad about some of this stuff, but the, the old guy who comes to the guy in the car and, it's, and he can drive the car back and forth, you know, in, uh, to times in the past and in the future. And the old guy comes to him and he says, never, never, never said it for 2020. Back to the future. We could say 2020, one of the worst years Ever. Without a doubt. We could say that. So an 11th grader, an 11th grade class in a Lubavitch school in Crown Heights, New York, was asked, they were given the assignment uh, to write a poem, The Worst Day Ever. I might translate this into The Worst Year Ever. And so Hani Gorkin, an 11th grader, was given this assignment but she was raised in our tradition. So she wrote a poem 
her worst day, the worst day ever. You might put the worst year ever if you'd like. And here's how she wrote it. She wrote it in short lines. That if you read it down, it has one message. Yerida, going down, and how bad it is, and how bad it can be, and how bad we've let it become. We are responsible for all of that. But she wrote it so that if you read the same poem, those short lines up, Aliyah, it's a whole different message. An 11th grader understood our tradition so beautifully. Here are her words. The worst day ever. Today was the absolute worst day ever. And don't try to convince me that there's something good in every day. Because when you take a closer look, this world is a pretty evil place. Even if some goodness does shine through once in a while. Satisfaction and happiness don't last. And it's not true that it's all in the mind and heart. Because true happiness can be attained only if one's surroundings are good. It's not true that good exists. I'm sure you can agree that the reality creates my attitude. It's all beyond my control. And you'll never in a million years hear me say today was a very good day. The very last line. So anyway, that's where it ends. Today, you'll never in a million years hear me say today was a very good day. Here's how it goes if you read it the other way. Today was a very good day. And you'll never in a million years hear me say it's all beyond my control. My attitude creates the reality. I'm sure you can agree that it's not true that good exists only if one's surroundings are good. True happiness can be attained because it's all in the mind and heart. And it's not true that satisfaction and happiness don't last. Some goodness does shine through once in a while, even if the world is a pretty evil place. Because when you take a closer look, there's something good in every day. And don't try to convince me, today was the absolute worst day ever. We descend into darkness only to go down or we descend in order to rise up. It's up to us. Gamartov.